McBride is an executive in residence at the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies that's part of the School of Public Affairs at American University in Washington, D.C. In that role, Anita directs programming on America's First Ladies and, most importantly, their historical influence. You'll often see Anita interviewed when questions arise about the role of the First Lady. She also advises on HBO's hit TV series, V. Anita previously served as Chief of Staff to First Lady Laura Bush from 2005 to 2008. In that role, she directed work on a variety of domestic and global initiatives that included U.S. foreign policy objectives in human rights, women's empowerment, global health, and also human freedom. Anita directed Mrs. Bush's travel to 67 countries in four years, and that included historic visits to Afghanistan, the Middle East, and the Thai-Burma border. Anita McBride's White House service has spanned two decades and three presidential administrations, including not only George W. Bush, but also serving as director of White House personnel under Presidents Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. We have much to discuss today. <laughs> Anita, welcome to She Said, She Said. Oh, thank you so much, Laura. I'm excited to talk to you today. I'm so happy to have you here. I think one of the biggest challenges I had in putting together our my thoughts on this mm -hmm. interview was where to start, <laughs> because we could talk about so many topics. Let's start, though, mm -hmm. with your current role at American University and the First Ladies Initiative, what is that? Sure, terrific way to start, and thank you, because it was the beginning of a new chapter uh, in my career and my time here in Washington. After the Bush administration was over in January of 2009, and I think a, a lot of us were thinking about what comes next, and uh, in addition to being very tired and barely able to put one foot in front of the other, I took a little time to regroup and really identify what it is that I enjoy doing. And I was approached by uh, the president, then president of American University, Neil Kerwin. Actually, he came to meet with me while I was still in the White House just to gauge my interest in an idea that he had for the university, which was watching with growing interest the influence of recent first ladies on our domestic politics and, and policy and, and global diplomacy, and whether I would be interested in starting a program at AU, because AU does have such a long history of hosting American first ladies dating back to Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, that's something that I could do, um, having a front row seat to watching Laura Bush, but also having the experience of working in the Reagan and Bush 1, Bush 41 administration. Uh, I developed a program at uh, his request through the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies, which is a perfect place to put it because it does add to the dialogue around this role that it is a partnership to the presidency. 
So we started developing a series of conferences around the country in partnership with presidential libraries, which was a perfect way to do this. And we also partnered with the White House Historical Association, where I am on the board there now as well. So tapping into those resources. We've done seven conferences around the country. I also do uh, a number of lectures, a number of guest lectures for other professors at AU. And we look at the role of First Lady as a woman leader in our country and throughout our whole history, mm-hmm. which is always fun. Yeah. Why is that important? Why is it important to understand the role yeah. that she played? Well, so, so sure. far, she, we're going to talk about sure. what happens if it sure, might be. Sure, because he. it could change. Yeah. So the role of a, a, part, a partner to the presidency, in this case, it's the first lady, but it's truly any political spouse. But in this in this case, throughout our history, if we truly want to understand our history, and I think that is so important for all of our children in our in our country to understand the fundamentals of our founding, who all the players were. And starting at the very beginning um, with the Martha Washington, with Dolly Madison, with Abigail Adams, they were so integral to our liberty and our democracy. They are part of our history and we should know our history. So that's why it's important to study them. So as you said yourself, you've had an opportunity to see this Mm -hmm. role up close and personal and you've worked not only with former First Lady Laura Mm -hmm. Bush, but a number of other First Ladies as Mm -hmm. well. What do you think is most surprising to people mm-hmm. when they study the role of the First Lady? Or what surprises most people when you talk about your experience? Sure. I think they're surprised with how much they're engaged in and how multifaceted the role really is. Because let's remember, we, we have this growing expectation of the position, and it is an automatically powerful platform the minute that the president is sworn in. But it is something that can be considered ill-defined because every single person gets to rewrite the position description the way they want it to be. There's no statutory requirements for it. There's no salary. Um, I I think that that sort of lends itself. Frankly, I agree with that. I think that they should um, not be codified through any form of legislation or through a salary or anything because it will constrain them. But the position, I think people are surprised at just how much it can be rewritten with each person. And they can pick and choose what they want to do. But that they do have this powerful light that they can shine on any issue that they care about. And they bring attention to it. Recently, our current First Lady, Melania Mm -hmm. Trump, has rolled out her part of her official platform. Some were a bit surprised Mm -hmm. by her choice of Mm cyberbullying. For the purposes of this discussion, we don't necessarily need to discuss the here here nor there of whether that makes sense. But I'm more interested in what the process is for determining what that platform is. So Mm -hmm. what was your experience as it relates to the development of what the First Lady is going to focus on? Well, I think that 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 is a great uh, question and, again, sort of adds to your previous question about their role and and how they get to define what they want it to be. They're best at it if they choose something that they really care about because then there is some credibility and authenticity to whatever the First Lady's platform is. And usually that's the best place to start, something that you care about. And I think despite uh, you know any of the criticisms that she may face about the choice 
of her first issue, that doesn't diminish the fact that it is something that we all do worry about Mm -hmm. in our country, and particularly someone who's a mother of young children. We're all focused on that. We see how our kids are impacted by social media, and they're never able to turn it off. And also how what sometimes is said is can be very hurtful and how they're able to deal with that. So it is sort of a life skill that we worry about for all of our kids, and I'm actually glad she's shining a light on it. Despite what else may be coming out of the Oval Office, it's still an important issue, so that shouldn't stop her from taking it on. Let's talk a bit about the evolution of the role itself. Sure. What are the most significant ways in which it's changed mm-hmm. and, and is continuing to change? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the major major things that has changed is, and all of us face this, is a growing and intrusive media and a 24-hour news cycle. There is really no way for anyone in public life to ever turn it off. Being able to create sort of a private life around a public figure is much more difficult. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you think about how in some of our our history, like Jackie Kennedy, for example, people were fascinated by this young, iconic, beautiful first lady. And mom. Um, and young and mom. young mother. But she was able to really live a part of a private life all the time away from the White House, riding horses in Middleburg or wherever that she was doing without the scrutiny of a media in the way that it is so intrusive now. And the questioning, um, including Mrs. Trump, who just you know recently has been out of the limelight, of course, after having um, her surgery. So there's these constant questions. What is she doing? Why is she not... And, you know, the certain requirement that we have now, because we have had very visible first ladies in recent times. So I think that the media scrutiny is probably one of the newer and more intrusive and more difficult things mm-hmm. for anybody uh, in the public eye to manage. So let's talk about the possibility of, hopefully, mm-hmm. we'll see a woman in the mm-hmm. Oval Office at right. some point in the not so distant future. That will potentially dramatically change the role mm-hmm. of first spouse. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> so let's talk about what that role might look like sure. under that scenario. Well, we got pretty close. You know, in 2008, it was a possibility. In 2016, it was a possibility when Hillary Clinton ran both those times. And there was some speculation about that at that point. Of course, there was an added layer of complication had Bill Clinton become the presidential spouse because he was already a president (laughs) of the United States. So there's a whole infrastructure that comes around that for a former president and also his foundation and work that he was deeply engaged in and what would happen to those things. So we face some of those questions. I'm a big believer in that any occupant of the White House adapts to the White House, but also the White House adapts to the occupant, and that the role may change or have a metamorphosis, but it would still provide the same opportunities should they choose to use the platform. So maybe there might be a different staff structure around a male uh, first spouse in terms of some of the social office 
responsibilities or requirements, but I've also known presidents who've been deeply involved in the planning of state dinners. George H.W. Bush was very involved in the in those kinds of things as president. So I think that we need to be careful to not stereotype a man coming into that that job. They may embrace all of the diplomatic requirements and the social requirements that come with it. I think the big question will be if they've had a, a job or a career before becoming the spouse of the president of the United States, will they want to continue that? And I think they may want to, and certainly they should try. But I think what they'll find are two things. One, there will be tremendous scrutiny, ethics scrutiny around that, of course, and particularly earning an outside salary, uh, maybe fair or unfair. We'll have to grapple with that. I think the other is that they'll find that there's so much good you can do with the presidential spouse position. It's a very busy job. It's very multifaceted. Uh, It changes from one minute to the next. There's so many things and opportunities on your schedule that you might not be able to balance two full-time jobs. You were privileged to Mm -hmm. know the late former First Lady Barbara Bush. Mm, Yes. how will we remember her? We've sadly mm-hmm. said goodbye to her just recently. Right. How will she be remembered, Anita? Well, I think, and you know, Laura, because you've met her on uh, many times, and, and Barbara Bush is just such a unique person in our lives and the lives of the country and any of us who are privileged to know her because she was just so honest and real, and you you knew this is a person who loved her faith and her family and her country and so adored her husband and the life that they led together and how privileged she felt to have the opportunity to lead the life that she did. I was always so taken by no matter what she had experienced in all of her years with George H.W. Bush around the country and around the world. She still was the Barbara Bush who loved gardening, who (laughs) loved her family, um, who loved to have people to her her home, and who loved to be, could be, you know, very biting at times with the things that she had to say, but she was willing to share life lessons with you. And I think that was a really wonderful part for any of us that knew her personally. But I think also for the country, she was comfortable in who she was, so comfortable in her skin. And that, I think, for anybody who always feels like they're not doing enough or they're not quite uh, measuring up to expectations, that she allowed you to feel like if you're living a good life, you're good to your family, you're going to be just fine. You wrote a beautiful piece on her passing and your remembrances of her, which was really lovely. So I urge our listeners to check that out. Thank you. I would just say... I didn't have the opportunity to Mm -hmm. spend as much time with Mm -hmm. her as you did, but on the few occasions that I did, I was always struck by her ability to make you feel incredibly important. She was very curious about people, asked great questions, and she clearly was really interested in getting to know you, which I think is such an amazing quality. It is, and if you're someone who's been in public life for so long and has met hundreds of thousands of people to be able to connect with each person in a way that they felt like they were the only person that was important at that time. That's a real skill and a talent, but it was genuine with Barbara Bush. And up until 
the last moment, you know, and her humor too, which I think, you know, is such a gift, uh, no matter what you are facing. But you're absolutely right about that. Her curiosity about you, if you're meeting with her, made you feel very special and very important. It's a gift, definitely a gift. Mm Let's talk a bit about your work on the HBO hit series, The Veep, that yeah, I mentioned no, in the intro. How did that come about? <laughs> <laughs> that's so fun, right? So this was another thing. Again, leaving the White House in this, you know, you have time to pursue other uh, other things. And this sort of uh, came to me through a great friend here in town, Tammy Haddad. And she had been, had been doing some work for HBO already. The writers wanted a bipartisan uh, group of consultants, which was really terrific and I think has really contributed to the show being as popular as it is, in addition to the incredible talent. I mean, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is just amazing. So thanks to Tammy, who uh, recommended me, and I said, Tammy, I'd be delighted to talk uh, about that. I didn't. Wor- I worked in the White House three times, but I never worked for a vice president but my husband Tim did, so I'm as a personal <laughs> aide to a vice president, so I feel like I can do this. So I had a great conversation with the producers and the creator, Armando Iannucci. He obviously liked some of the thoughts or ideas that I had. And next thing you know, there I was one of the few uh, consultants. There were three of us, in addition to Tammy. And it's just been great fun. I will say this, though, in one of the first script that I read, I thought was very funny, and I was there to give technical edits, you know, where would the, the cars be, you know, be, where would the flags be, what door gets opened, you know, who sits where, those kinds of things, not really into the, the script writing, but I happened to just give my own commentary on, on the script, uh, some, because the language that was used could be quite intense the f word is dropped quite a bit it certainly was not used in the bush it was white not house, I and i said it was never i never heard it in the reagan white house or the bush 41 white house so i just happened after i gave all my technical edits i sent it back and i said oh and by the way um we really don't speak that way in the white house and i got a response back saying thanks for all the technical edits this is great and by the way we'll write the comedy <laughs> And you give us the technical details. I said, okay, I got it. So that was season one. In, in seasons that came after that, it's been really fun to be part of the script writing and actually meet with the writers and, and you know, talk with some of the actors and, and, uh, and be on site for some of the filming when they used to film here in Columbia, Maryland. So awesome. it's fun. This is the final season. Yeah. It's been a great run. That's fantastic. Anita, and practically every book that's written about First Ladies, there's some discussion about navigating conflict between the East Wing staff, where the First Lady and her staff typically sit, and the West Wing staff. Mm -hmm. What was your experience in the Bush administration? Well, in the George W. Bush administration, the experience was one where we were fully integrated teams. The East and the West Wing, we worked so well with each other. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, the tone is really set from the top. George W. Bush looked to Laura Bush to be a partner with him in the work that he was engaged in, whether it's domestic education reform, which, of course, as a teacher and librarian, he knew she was extremely experienced in this. He counted on her to be a part of that. And the other, of course, on the global work 
that that he was engaged in and really needed Laura Bush to be his diplomat, to be his face and traveling out, out there uh, supporting PEPFAR, malaria, and all the issues that he was engaged in. But the fundamental is being, one, he set the tone, and the staff all knew that, both the East and West Wing. And the other thing is she also set the tone because she was always very honest in saying, I'm not here for me. I'm here for George and because of George. And the West Wing staff, knowing that too, they appreciated that as well because they're working so hard for the president. So they looked to Laura Bush as being someone that they could count on to help make their lives and jobs a little bit easier too. She traveled so much. She did whatever was asked of her, whether it was political campaigning or for cabinet officer wanted her to travel with them. We did it. I think, again, the bottom line is that the tone is set by the president. And I do know from having worked there before and studying first ladies, that was not always the case. Certainly, Pat, Pat Nixon probably suffered that a great deal. She could have really done so much more for her husband, and she did the most traveled first lady in history, 81 countries, more than any other first lady, but most wow. people don't even know, no, that. No, I didn't know that. But her husband's advisors just really, you know, felt that she should not be engaged or it shouldn't be known how much that she was doing or traveling because they felt that it could be perceived negatively mm. by the American people. Now that really is an area where that's a total our shift. Have evolved. Completely a total shift. Betty Ford, too, obviously was at odds with some of the principles of the Ford administration. She supported the ERA. President Ford really didn't. Maybe he did personally, but as a policy, he didn't. And certainly his advisors were very worried that her promoting the ERA would hurt him with voters. So it really has evolved so much. But again, bottom line, it's the tone that's set by the person at the top. Your your work with the First Ladies has actually extended beyond the U.S., and mm-hmm. you've also had an opportunity to work with First Ladies globally mm-hmm. as well. How how are those roles different from what we have here? Yeah, it's a great question, and actually that has been, you know, one of the fun parts about traveling all over the world with Laura Bush is you get to meet a lot of your counterparts, and some of them are male counterparts in, in some countries, but by and large in the majority Uh, your peers are female. And we did so much travel to Africa, as you know, with the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Laura Bush was really the the face of that initiative for the president. And we went to 15 different countries, I think over five trips. So we met with a lot of her counterparts. And they're so eager to be involved in the work of their country. They want to be a partner to their leader as well. And they are important to to the work that's going on and certainly was important partnership for us uh, in the United States to be able to work so directly with the leaders of a country on this incredible life-saving initiative. So anyway, that, but the difference for all of them was they don't really have the large infrastructure around them like our first ladies do, are very blessed. Even though it's not a codified position, there is in the White House Personnel Authority, there is there are assets of a staff assigned to the First Lady. That's not really the case anywhere else. 
I was approached also after leaving the White House by the Rand Corporation that does a lot of work extensively around the world. And they had hosted a conference out in Los Angeles on a global health uh, conference, and they brought first ladies in from Africa. And we did a roundtable with these first ladies, and it was myself and Milan Verveer, who Mm -hmm. had been the chief of staff to Hillary Clinton. And what came out of that roundtable discussion about how first ladies can be so actively involved was a recognition by Rand that there's something here to helping these women build an infrastructure, build a staff structure, prioritize how they can spend their time. So they asked me if I'd be interested in that. And I said, sure, I can help do that. So we developed the the African First Ladies Initiative for RAND. It uh, was a three-year sort of pilot. And it was something of great interest to the Bush Institute, actually. And they have taken and run that with that for developing a First Ladies Initiative there that I'm also an advisor mm-hmm. to that works with First Ladies around the world. Why is that so important from a national security standpoint, sure. for example? Sure. That's a great connection to make to this because, again, there is so much that comes to the desk of the leader of, of a country, and certainly in our country, to to the president, and that they need allies and they need people that they can count on to help be a partner in their work. So in the case of certainly in Africa and the PEPFAR initiative, what was so fundamental there and why the first ladies there wanted to be so involved, because they feel like they were the mothers of their country. And in fact, some of them actually said that. And if your children, quote unquote, are not healthy or don't have an education, then they can't be, you know, functioning members of society. They agreed. And as, you know, President Bush had said, if they are marginalized, then they are targets to being, you know, co-opted by forces that then certainly can lead to terrorism. So that is why it's so important to be able to identify the issues for the people in your country that need you to focus on them. And certainly we saw that in the malaria initiative and the PEPFAR initiative to be a great partner in the development of countries that needed our help. And then because they want to do it on their own. They want to be full-functioning, you know, members of society and in the global community in trade and development and health and in education. They want to be leaders. And so that's one way where I felt Laura Bush was so great in working with her counterparts and finding ways that they can forge together and, and really uh, uh, be an example yeah. of a better life for people in their country. So your work with Mrs. Bush was Mm -hmm. not your first job in the White House, as we've touched on. Um, Were you always interested in politics? How did you end up uh, becoming Laura Bush's, Mrs. Bush's chief of staff? I never would have expected. I love that you asked this question because even sometimes I'm still surprised of (laughs) what I've done and where where I've ended up and who knows what comes next, right? It was a far cry from growing up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where I'm from, 
I was never interested in politics. My family was not a political family. My family were all immigrants from uh, from Italy. Uh, they came as young adults, but and, and then met and married as adults. But my father was from uh, Calabria, Italy. Never rose beyond a third grade education. Was a factory worker his whole life, and came here with one possession, with his trumpet. He was a musician, and that was his great joy in life was music. My mother uh, came here as a as a eight year old. First time she had seen her father because he left Italy when my grandmother was pregnant, and it took him all those years to make the money to bring his wife and his daughter over here. Met my dad; they got married, um, but she died when I was three years old of ovarian cancer. So I grew up with my grandparents and that my maternal grandparents and my father lived right next door which is typical of you know uh, immigrant families and multi-generations all in one house Uh, so we were all together but they really were there so I really had a different path in my life I wanted to go into gerontology I wanted to go into medicine I wanted to be a doctor that I felt was my calling until I got to college and started taking all the science courses Let's just say I had all the compassion to be a physician. I just was not that great in chemistry, bio, and <laughs> physics. Three fundamental subjects. Acing bedside to be, manner. I was, yes, exactly. I was acing bedside manner. I would have been very good at that. So I needed to make a complete change. I saw this sign at my college counselor's office of a new program to Italy. And I said, well, I'm going to try that. And, um, you know, I felt that that was something that I had always wanted to see where my family had come from. And so I signed up for that and I was accepted into the program. I spent my junior year abroad. Just happened to be a really pivotal year. It was 1979 when the American hostages were taken in Iran. And that was a life-changing moment for me. I went to an Italian university in Florence. There were a lot of foreign students from all over the world, mostly Europe, but some also from the Middle East. And the reaction of the foreign students to this taking of American hostages shocked me and actually made me really mad because they were celebrating it. You know, this was a period of time where communism was in Italy. There were a lot of fun, you know, uh, fundamentalists and activist groups, particularly amongst young young people. And so that reaction really shocked me because remember, I grew up in a family who left their country, their home country, because they were poverty stricken and they felt the United States gave them everything. So I grew up in a very patriotic family, but not political. But that experience in 1979 when I came back home then in 1980, it was the height of the presidential campaign. You know, Connecticut is a liberal state. Certainly, UConn, the campus, was not a bastion of Reaganism, that's for sure. But I went and I gathered a couple of other friends. We went and worked the phone banks and were volunteers. It was really the old-fashioned way. I mean, you're knocking on doors and you're calling people. And I really loved it. And then, of course, Ronald Reagan won. And so I was inspired by that. Now, I wanted to move to Washington, but like every young Republican who wanted to come here, there were really, I didn't have the skills or the network, but I also had to finish school. I was 12 credits short because of my pre-med experience. So I moved down here 
and I went to American University. I got my final 12 credits here, did an internship at the Department of Commerce. I volunteered at the RNC, and I slowly started just building my network in um, politics. So I volunteered in the Reagan-Bush 84 campaign here in Washington, and that was the big difference because now I was in the national headquarters. I met a lot of people, and I was offered a job in the White House a week after the reelection. And it was the lowliest of jobs, Laura, but it was one of the (laughs) best jobs I ever had. I was reading Ronald Reagan's mail. I was a mail analyst, and you had to be trained how to read the mail. And the woman who trained me had been hired in 1945 in the last months of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It was mostly a career operation in uh, in that office, and there were a few young political people like me. But I got to put together the sample of mail that Ronald Reagan would take to Camp David in the weekends and that he would respond to as both pro and con. And what that really taught me is for any elected official, the further and further you get removed from the people who elected you, this is the one way that they really can stay connected to what people are thinking and how they're feeling or how they may be hurting or how they're worried about or happy about what you're doing as their leader. So I loved that job and I kept moving up in correspondence and then into other functions of White House operations, including personnel. I had that opportunity in White House personnel for five years, which was a, a long stretch, but it also allowed me to work on two presidential transitions. And that's where I really, really learned a lot. I know you've written about uh, the fact that you almost, or I think you mm-hmm. sort of questioned whether or not you should take the job working for former First Lady Laura Bush. Talk about sort of sure. what that experience was like and why you hesitated for a moment. George Bush won the reelection in November of 2004, and I got a call a week later from Laura Bush's then chief of staff, Andy Ball, who had come with her from Texas and had told Laura Bush if President Bush wins re-election, I am going to go back home. Andy had called me and said, Mrs. Bush would like to talk to you about being her chief of staff. Well, I was so floored, um, excited, but sort of nervous all at the same time. I actually dropped my cell phone. I was in carpool line picking up the kids at (laughs) at school. (laughs) And I dropped my cell phone and I picked it back up and I said, "Um, Andy, I am so honored to get this call. Can I call you back in 24 hours? Because Tim at this point was traveling in Argentina. He was traveling all the time. I knew instinctively with that call what it would mean for our family life, a job like that. It, it White House is just 24 hours a day. You have to be prepared for that. As exciting as it is, and knew it would be some travel, knew that Tim is traveling so lot and we it's so much and we had two little kids and how would this work? So I called Tim in Buenos Aires and the, for his guidance was the best and I'll always remember it. He said two things. One, you can't say no to a job you haven't been offered. And two, if you were lucky enough to get this job, we will figure it out. So absolutely, you should go for it and go for the interview. And that gave me all the sort of confidence but all, uh, that I needed, but removed all the pressure that I had mm-hmm. felt was working against me to even consider the job. It just turned out, it turned out to be a great meeting with her. She set out her three priorities right away. The first was saying, I want to go to Afghanistan. I thought, wow, this is really going to be a different first lady's office for sure. And that I felt, and I 
started to tell her uh, ways that I felt that she could do it. Knowing my experience now being at state, the U.S. Afghan Women's Council made an annual trip there every year, and she could easily slip into that. And so we talked about that. And then her other priorities um, as well. So a week later, I, I left thought, thinking, wow, even if I didn't get the job, that was such a great experience. And I think Laura Bush was comfortable with me, too, because she knew of me by extension because of Tim, mm-hmm. because he had been five years with their family as her father-in-law's personal aide and knew the level of loyalty and discretion that he had had. And I think she felt I had those same skills and certainly would have the support from someone like Tim to be able to do the job and all the demands that come with it. It turned out to be great. Capstone of my career. Absolutely. What advice would you have for your younger self? What Mm -hmm. do you wish you had known when you were just starting out? That is a great question. I think that if I could go back, I wish I would be less worried about making a mistake than at least just trying to do it. You know, and I think we know and we're so much more in tuned with that, um, the fear of failure now, that failure is not a bad thing. It's a bad thing. It means you tried. Mm-hmm. I think that fear of failure was something that, again, was sort of overriding. I was young mm-hmm. and didn't want to disappoint anybody around me, particularly, you know, my family, and didn't want anyone to think I couldn't succeed at something. Anita, what do you do when your confidence is feeling low? Yeah. What What do you do to build your own confidence so that you can keep going? I mentor a group of girls, of young women who, you know, work on the Hill, and sometimes I get more energy from being with them, hearing what they're doing or when they ask me questions, I'm sort of reminded like, okay, then I do have something to offer them. So sometimes it's being around other, you know, people that uh, find in me that they need my help. And that helps me get more confidence that my experience or my time here in Washington or my, my experience as a mother or anything that I may be engaged in actually has value and can help, you know, other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think being around people that give me energy, like you, Laura. Mm, thank you. Um, always just brightens my day. Being around people that, you know, really um, think that your time and, and you are worthwhile and they want, want to talk to you or spend time with you, that is really helpful. You know, and you say how lucky we really are. Things aren't always perfect every day, um, but there's so many good people, you know, sort of in your life that just help you to feel energized and inspired and that you are, you know, doing things that make a difference. Mm -hmm. As you know, we ask each of our guests Mm -hmm. for one piece of advice or life hack, either a mantra that they live by or advice that they consistently give to others. What is yours? This is something timeless I'm going to offer to you. It's just live by the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. It's really fundamental to every human interaction. 
that we have, and sometimes it gets tough, particularly in a, in a world uh, like this that we live in, and you're so bombarded with so many things that can be negative. But you know what? People really do respond to someone being kind to them. And I think not only does it make your career more fulfilling, but it makes your life more pleasant. Anita. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, so you much. Laura. You're incredible. Thank you for doing you. these podcasts. I listen to them all. I learn something from someone every single day. Good. I'm so glad. Thank you. Thank you again. It's wonderful Thanks. to have you. To learn more about Anita, please visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There we will post some photos, some additional notes from our visit, as well as Anita's bio. And if you're enjoying She Said, She Said, please leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.